0: If you have your Bible there this evening, let's turn to the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And today we'll be reading from verse 26 down to verse 43. I'll read it to you. You can follow along in your own Bibles. Beginning in verse 26. Now as they led him, that is Jesus, away, they laid hold on a certain man, Simon the Syrian, who was from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of pe- of the people followed him. That is Jesus. And women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said... Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, wombs that have never bore and breasts that have never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, two other criminals, two others criminals led with him to be put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, where they cruci- there they crucified him and the criminal criminals, one on the right hand and one on the left hand. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming And offering him sour wine saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who who were hanged blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And indeed, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. You know, the Gospels don't take much time with the crucifixion of Jesus. Or at least with the, the, the death of Christ. Especially Luke here in this. Luke doesn't dwell on it. Many have said this is one of the reasons how you know that it is not inspired by an earthly writer. It was steered and moved and manufactured by God. Because we, in our nature, we would dwell on this the gory details, the sound of the hammer striking the nail that pierced his wrist. We would go into the sound of the mourners. We would try and paint a vivid picture. You know you mean you can imagine all preachers like to paint vivid pictures. We are wordsmiths. We we paint with our words. And if we were to write this, our record of it would be much more vivid than it really than we have been given. Look. Glosses over all the details, takes no time with them. He just goes to the bare essentials of the facts. What is needed. Again, for you and I, we would maybe dwell on this: the tragedy, the, the terror, the pain, the agony, the heartbreak, the injustice. But look for look for the Holy Spirit through the writer. That is only steps on the journey. Humanly speaking, it seems as if Christ is defeated. Humanly speaking, it seems as if he's a broken man. His great plan has crumbled and is falling. Yet the Holy Spirit, through the writer, doesn't want us to dwell on apparent failure doesn't want us to dwell upon the tragedy. Indeed, for the Holy Spirit, this is not a tragedy. This is a triumph. This is the victory. This is the reason for why Christ came into the earth, into the world. The Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. So when we read this, of course it was written in order to evoke emotion, But in the same time, the right kind of emotion. Not defeat, not despair, but triumph. This is Jesus' great victory. We're told here, again in the details, the small details that we're giving, that Jesus was so badly beaten, so desperately abused, that he wasn't able to carry his own cross that they recruited a, a, a passerby, a, a stranger in the crowd. Now, church history has produced a, a fable, a story about this man, that he was a disciple of Jesus or that he was coming in with his family. to, for him. And they painted this ridiculous picture that we have no evidence for. There's nothing in the scriptures that tell us this. The Bible does tell us that his family was known to the church. But other than that, everything else is just a fable. Just one of those church history myths. But we do know that Jesus was so badly beaten that he couldn't bear. He was like a dead man walking. And his appearance must have been so bad that this multitude of women, this multitude of people gathered. And when they looked upon him, they... They knew immediately that the end was had come for Jesus. That all of their hopes, all of their dreams, had dashed down. Now, whether again these were professional mourners, people who were paid to mourn for the dead. Do you remember in another place where Jairus's daughter? Do you remember Jairus's daughter had died? He was the leader of the temple or the. The synagogue and uh, the women had gathered outside his house and Jesus commanded them to be quiet and put them out they were professional mourners it was part of their culture where they would wheel and carry on now, here in Finland in northern Europe when a person dies we're all respectful and quiet at the graveyard you know nobody says anything and we all stand there in our suits you know we all kind of look solemn I had the Honor of being invited to a um, a Burmese funeral. A child had died. One of the Burmese children had died in a car accident, and I, I went to the funeral. I was invited to the funeral. I went to the funeral, and I was standing there with all the Finnish people. And we were all standing there, and the Burmese community from all over Finland had gathered, and they had their their. I think it was a Buddhist ritual. I'm not quite sure, but I think it was Buddhist or some sort of. And then the the men began to mourn and wail and cry and beat themselves beat each other and the younger brothers of the mother of the child that had died got very angry and aggressive with the father who was driving the car when the accident happened. And as we're putting the the coffin into the into the grind, some of the young men threw themselves into the, into the, the hole, you know, and they, they tried to fight with the father and throw him in the hole and the poor Finns didn't know what to do. They were all like, who? Oh, oh, who? Oh, 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 I don't know. Uh, being an Irishman, I'm quite used to that kind of level of emotion so it's no problem for me. But it was so strange, so foreign to see people from another culture in their mourning. And for, so for you and I, when we look at this situation with Jesus being led out, and these women lamenting and mourning and wailing and crying and, and pulling their hair, and you know, they've got their dark makeup on and they're dressed in, in you know, rags or whatever, it's very hard for us to get the image, the, the theatre of it. And as they're following Jesus, you know, it's a mourning. It, it's, 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 it's terrible. It's frightening. Shocking. Sad. And yet, as they're following Jesus out, it tells us here in verse 28 that Jesus turns to them and stops them. He says, Daughter, daughters of Jerusalem. So he identifies them right away. As being people from Jerusalem. Not necessarily his followers. They were people from that area. They were the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves. And for your children. See Jesus knew. What was in store for Jerusalem. He knew the judgment that would fall upon them. He had warned them before. Not just simply through revelation obviously because he was God, but because of the scriptures have spoken. Everything that was written in the scriptures must be fulfilled about Jerusalem. And we're told in the scriptures that judgment would come upon Jerusalem. And they think that this tragedy that's happening to Jesus is the worst thing that can happen to a person. It's it's, it's terrible and horrible And they're wailing and they're crying and they're being emotional, dramatic. Yet Jesus turns to them and said, don't cry for me. Because what's happening to me is small in comparison to what will happen to you and to your children. There is even in his final moments or final last hours of life, there's still the compassion there. There's still this overwhelming need to warn people of the wrath that is to come. Even as he himself, as his lifeblood is being poured out, his final thoughts in those final hours are for the well-being and safety of others. He's still calling people to repentance. He's still warning them. And he goes on in verse 28 and 20, uh, 29 and 30. He warns them of the, the absolute horror that will befall Jerusalem. If you've ever read Josephus in the Antiquity of the Jews, that history of that terrible siege, cannibalism, barbaric behavior of the mercenaries that surrounded Jerusalem it's terrible it's terrible and Jesus is warning them and then Jesus says in verse 31 if they do these things in the green wood what will be done in the dry which is, has been a very debated text what did Jesus mean by that who are they Well, there are three thoughts. is either the Romans, the Jews, or even God himself. What will happen? Who is the green wood? Jesus. The time in which they live, perhaps. The spiritual age that they're a part of. I personally think the they is... The world, the flesh, the devil—perhaps not necessarily just the Jews. Certainly, the Romans. But here, Christ is saying, if if this, such a terrible thing can happen to some someone who is alive in God, and the life of God is thick and deep and real, there's a an allusion to whether this is from a verse in Ezekiel talking about the the, the the greening of the olive tree. If you know about olive trees, they are intensely oily trees and it takes forever for the, the sap or the oil to drain from the wood for it to become dry and brittle. And here, the thought is that that Jesus Christ is the green wood, the living tree. The life is rich and deep in him. And if such things can happen to him, if God can pour out his wrath upon someone like him, how much more will it come about when there is no life in the wood, when there is no sap in the branch, when there are dead branches, there is no bearing of fruit. If God was prepared to pour out his wrath upon his own son, one whom he loved, the one who he had been in eternal fellowship with in eternity past, because of the seriousness and the consequences of sin, how much more will he be prepared to pour out his wrath upon those who are not alive in him? Upon those who have no connection to him. We remember John the Baptist way back in the beginning. Warning about every branch that does not bear fruit he takes up. He warned them about the baptism of fire that was to come. Jesus again at the end of his ministry is warning the people if such a thing like this can happen to me do you think that you will escape the judgment that is to come? If God is prepared to pour out his wrath and the curse of God which induced such suffering upon me The spotless Lamb of God, how much more will He be prepared to pour out that wrath upon those who are infested by iniquity? Upon those rebels, upon those dry branches. It's very challenging, isn't it? Because we often think, again, in our minds and our hearts, well, I'm okay. I'm not like the Taliban. I'm not like those people in wherever, whatever. I live in Finland and I'm happy and nice and pleasant and everyone loves me and I've never done anything bad in my life. and no Snell. But it's not a question whether you're kind or nice or Snell. It's is your, per- your righteousness as perfect as Christ's? Have you. Kept the law of God perfectly in word, thought and in deed. And we all know if we were to look at ourselves honestly that we have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have slipped up. We demonstrate through our actions that sin is alive within us. We are not sinful because we do sinful things. We do sinful things because we are sinful. We have inherited the nature of Adam a distorted, broken image, a disabled handicap that we have inherited from our first spiritual, real father. If we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, we understand how desperately far we have fallen. And Jesus warns those ladies and warns all generations down the ages that we must take the consequences of sin seriously because judgment is real. Jesus is the living demonstration of how serious God takes sin. If God was prepared to pour out his wrath upon his own son, who gave himself up as a sacrifice, an atonement, he was in our place. He is our substitute. If we then deny that substitute, if we then refuse that sacrifice shall we be able to endure the suffering should we be able to carry the burden to face the wrath of God and to come through it unscathed unharmed no friend no not one of us the Bible then goes on to tell us that there were two criminals who were then crucified together with Christ they were led out with him it tells us in another gospel that they were thieves they were guilty of theft and that they had been condemned to death and that here it tells us that jesus was crucified between them the emphasis there is it was a demonstration that jesus was the worst the idea excuse me the idea is that the one in the middle is always the worst that was the the place where you put the worst of the worst the one who you really wanted to emphasize so people would walk by and they would throw stones they would they would Cast abuse. This one must have been the really bad one. He's in the center place. And so Jesus was set in the center. as So the one that everyone would see. Everyone would know. Everyone would be able to recognize as the worst of the worst. And then in verse 34. We have one of the sayings of Christ. As he was upon the cross. Even as he is. Crucified, hanging there, suffering. We once again see the heart of Christ. And he says, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Not praying for so much for the Jews, but rather for the Romans who were crucifying, for the passers by perhaps, who were mocking him and scoffing perhaps didn't recognize him because of his marred appearance. But there is this intercession in Christ. He is praying for them, asking the Father to intervene on their behalf, asking even in this time for mercy. Again, think. Jesus is the victim here. He has been unfairly tried, unjustly tried. He was found guilty of no crime. And yet he was sentenced to death as a convenience to keep the peace. One man for the nation. You would think that there may be a little bitterness about him, a little bit of anger or unfairness. A little bit of, I don't deserve this. But even in the midst of his trial, even in the midst of his death, his thoughts are not for himself, but for others, for those around him, those little lambs. What a savior we have. You know, you can really tell what's inside a person when they're under pressure. You know, there's the old saying in Irish, or Northern Irish at least, you can really tell what toothpaste looks like when you give it a squeeze. You know, I don't know if you're... It's, the idea is, you know what's inside a person whenever the pressure's on, What what's inside will come out. If you put them in an emergency situation, some people scream, some people go into shock. I always remember one of my cousins got knocked down by a car just... Um, uh, with the road across away from our house, one of my younger cousins knocked him and his leg went whoop. And my, my mom, of course, saw it from the window and she was straight out. And the big crowd of people had gathered around. And my aunt, my cousin's mother, uh, was standing there screaming and hysterical because her son, had, his leg was completely mangled. He was only seven years old at the time. And my mom just walked in, took control, calmed everybody down, phoned the almonds, straightened the leg. By the time the almonds had come, the leg was splinted and everything else. And my mom was just like, anybody said anything. There was just that kind of, my mom took control and charge and blah, blah, blah. Got my auntie calmed down, made her a cup of tea and everything and got them a lift to to the, the hospital. You can tell what's inside a person during a time of crisis. And in Jesus Christ, in this tremendous crisis, in this the greatest of all crises, His thoughts are not for Himself or for His own needs, but rather for the needs of those around Him, the, those who have been caught up in this great drama. And that speaks volumes of this of the Savior that you and I have trusted in. We know that in this time of crisis, that His mind heart was for those around him. Now as he is seated in heaven, the Bible tells us that he is interceding for his church, for his bride. We can be confident that that which he did in a time of trial and was faithful in that trial, now as he is lifted up and employed in the act of Intercession, that he will be faithful to continue that act of intercession for us, his church. We can stand firm in the belief that he will never leave us or forsake us. Why? Because we have seen him at his worst. We have seen him at his lowest, and even at his worst, even in his lowest moment. He stands higher than Mount Everest. His behavior is unlike any others. His conduct, spotless and pure and unselfish. We can look to him and say, I know that I can trust him. I know that I can look to him for help because even in his darkest hour he shone like the sun in compassion and mercy and goodness and generosity what a wonderful sir savior we have let us not paint him in the colors of our own corruptness you know the bible god says in the bible i am not as a man don't think of me as a man i am not as a man that's because when we look at God, we often look at Him through the lens or the the filter of our own impressions or understandings. As a pastor, I've always having to deal with people's misunderstandings or misrepresentations of who God is, or God the Father. And one of the, the most normal, usual misunderstandings is when people are in relationship with God, they often portray their relationship with God as, as their own relationship with their earthly father. And so they, they look at their relationship with God through the lens of their own experience. And oftentimes if a person has had a bad relationship with their father a, 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 an up and up been dying, or inactive in a passive relationship, that reveals itself in how they relate to God the Father. It's one of the reasons why we must look at God through the Scriptures. Why we teach the children the ABCs of God. Because we desire them not to know God through their earthly experiences, but through how God has revealed himself in the Scriptures. We see God the Father through the lens of Jesus Christ. God cares for us. Jesus demonstrates that even in the end. Verse 35. We are told that the, the rulers of the people were sneering and they were speaking among themselves. He saved others, let him see himself. And if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. They're mocking him right at the end. And it says here, the soldiers mocked him as well. And they offered him sour wine. It's only in Luke that we get that detail. The idea was they were asking him to toast. They were offering him this, this, not a bribe, but a drink in order that he would demonstrate his godness, his Christness. That even when the drink of sour wine or vinegar was an act of mockery. That act of mercy was an act of mockery. And they put the inscription over his head. This is the king of the Jews. In Greek, Latin and Hebrew so that all, everyone would understand it. Then, of course, they came to the criminals who had been mocking him and blaspheming him. And we're told of the one who denies and the one who seeks mercy. One of these men mocked Jesus. And it's almost as if he's trying to motivate Jesus or to goad him into saving them. Sure, if, if you're big enough, why don't you do it? Do it. Go ahead. Save us. Save yourself. Save us. And it's almost like he's trying to wind Jesus up in order to motivate him to kind of you know, if you can do it, do it. Go ahead. I I don't think you can do it. Do it. Can you do it? And it's like this social pressure. You know, this kind of a peer pressure. By saying you can't do it, you're trying to motivate someone into doing it. Like a reverse psychology type thing. And he is mocking Jesus this man is about to die he knows who Jesus is we see that from his conversation conversation with the other criminal and yet there is no compassion there is no fear he just mocks Jesus and treats him lightly i think that's the most telling there's no respect there's no reverence there's no again fear in his conversation he knows he's going to die this criminal this thief and yet he has no concept of eternity no concern about the afterlife he just wants off the cross he just wants to be rescued in this life It's a momentary rescue he wants. He's not concerned about eternity. He's concerned about this life. Save me, Jesus, in this life. He's desperately looking for a way out. He is earthly minded. And then we see the second thief. The other one, verse 40, answering and rebuking him. Do you not even fear God? Isn't that very revealing? By telling the, or asking the, the other, faith, can you imagine on either side of Christ, he's kind of doing this. Do you not even fear God? He's saying, you need to fear God. I fear God. He understands they're about to die. He understands that they're about to pass into eternity. He understands that he will stand before God in judgment. He understands that he is guilty of sin. We see that, don't we, in the continuation of the verse, seeing that you are under the same condemnation, we're going to die. This man, unlike the first, fears God and is aware of his own sinfulness, aware of his own shortcomings, of his unholiness, of his sin. He's a thief. He knew what he was. And he deserved the sentence, according to their law, that he was given. It was inescapable, unavoidable. He was right. Now he's standing at the edge of eternity and he knows that he will face a judge unlike any other. A judge who cannot be bribed. A judge who cannot be emotionally manipulated. Tears don't work. He will stand before the judge of all heaven, of all creation. And he rebukes his fellow thief. It says in verse 41, We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So there we see his understanding of judgment, his understanding of guilt is right. But also we understand and we see clearly that his understanding of the innocence of Jesus is clear and right. He was probably in the same cell as Barabbas, was probably there when they took Barabbas out and let Barabbas go and put Jesus in his place, this man who had done nothing wrong. Jesus was a celebrity. Everyone knew who Jesus was. Here's a man recognising Christ, the innocence, the undeservingness of Jesus. It's very telling and clear. And he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied to him, Assuredly, I said to you, you will be with me in paradise. Or this day you will be with me in paradise. I think that's a very telling conversation. Did Jesus make an appeal? Did Jesus preach at all on the cross? Did they play music? Did Jesus tell three funny stories and an emotional ending? Was there any kind of debate or conversation between the two? No, nothing, nothing. Though this man was called and the other was not. The Holy Spirit drew one man and the other was excluded. We see very clearly, even up to the end, that salvation is of grace, not through works. What work did this man do? this convicted thief, this man so deserving of punishment that he was to receive death? How did he justify himself? By what good deed? By what work? There was none. He himself confessed that he was rightly judged and received the just Sentence That which was deserving. And yet here we have Christ affirming to this man the word in this Bible is assuredly in the other Bible I was using truly, verily, verily, as it says in the old English. Well, it doesn't say it twice, it only says it once. It means honestly, I'm telling you, you can bank on it. This is the truth. What work did this man do to deserve salvation? Nothing. Because the Bible says that salvation is by faith and that it is a gift of God, not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. That should inspire us with such hope. That that should motivate us in our prayers. And in our evangelism, in our conversations, it should embolden us never to give up nor to give in, but to ply on, to be loud and true and free, for we know that God will call his own to him, and nothing, nothing shall prevent them from coming. If a person is called by God, if a person has been chosen by God, as the scriptures say, God will quicken them and enliven them and call them to himself. They shall respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They shall be attracted to him as iron is to a magnet. It's irresistible. That should embolden us. Think of our beloved brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, daughters, sons, grandparents, uncles, aunts, neighbours in the street, strangers in the street, our work friends, our childhood friends, all those that we know that do not know him, that have no love for him, have no time for him, who are guilty of sin and are separated by an endless gulf, who have no time. And when you think of them, you think, no, there's not a chance in this world. There's not an opportunity. I can't imagine, I can't imagine that there would be such a change in their lives that they would by themselves come to Christ, that they would follow Him. You may have communicated the gospel time and time and time again. And yet their heart is hard and cold and dead and far from him. But yet we see here the truth of the promise that when Jesus made. That not one of these little ones shall be taken from my hand. All whom the Father gives to me shall come. Let us be confident. Let us be emboldened. Let us know with all certainty. Jesus Christ is able to save even until the end, and nothing can prevent a person from coming to faith. I remember the story of George Mueller and the man that he prayed for throughout his entire life that they would come to faith. And he had a list of these men, I don't really remember the details, but he had a list of these men that he was praying for throughout all his life. And he, would, he wrote them down. And after five years, one of them came to faith. And then after a certain another one came to faith. And, and then George, all the way down until the, the last name on the list. And George Muller passed into glory. And that man's name was still on the list. And he was the only one on the list who hadn't come to, to salvation. And, uh, but he was so moved by George Muller's witness. That he attended the funeral. And at the funeral of George Muller, they uh, celebrated his life. And they thanked God that, that George had passed into glory, but not because of his good deeds or anything that he'd done, but because of Christ. And in that funeral service, the man saw Christ high and lifted up, and the Lord saved them. A life lived in intercessory prayer. And even when George Mueller wasn't there to personally do anything, the, God remembered those prayers and answered them even after the death of George Mueller. Beloved, let us not grow weary. Let us not grow tired. Let us press on. For we know that if we do not give up in due time, we will reap a harvest. Nothing can prevent the saving power of God from working. Let us press on with great courage because Jesus Christ is able to save. A person may be standing at the the, the edge, the precipice of eternity. They may falter and almost fall but in that last moment Christ shall snatch them back and save them. Beloved, how glorious and wonderful our God is that not one of those whom the Father gives Christ shall ever be lost. Let us be confident in our evangelism. Let us be confident in our witness. Let us not be cowardly Let us not be frightened. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Sadly, too many of us are embarrassed of the gospel. Sadly, too many of us are frightened of the gospel. The fear of man sits upon our shoulder and whispers in our ear. They'll think you're a crazy person, they'll think you're a freak. They'll laugh at you. They'll exclude you. They'll talk about you. We fear what people think of us rather than fearing where those people will end up in eternity. We would rather be friends with them in this life than family with them in eternity. As long as we have peace with them here now, it's okay. If they go to hell, that's on them. Oh, beloved, Christ has called you to a higher life. He has commanded you, like all his followers down through the ages, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. The Great Commission wasn't only for the disciples, for the twelve. It's for the church. Eternal. For all of us. We are those who represent Christ in this age. And that mantle of witness has fallen to us. And there's far too much of our own culture in us. We're too respectable, too nice, too afraid of being different. Oh friend, look upon the thief. A man who had nothing to lose. A man who understood his end had come. And it was now or never. And we're told, aren't we, Jesus said to the man, assuredly, I said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Not in a thousand years. Disqualifies purgatory right there. Today. As you leave this life, you will enter another and enter into paradise, that place of perfection, that place where Christ is. I know no more details than that, beloved. He went to a place of paradise, a new Eden, in that sense, a place of blessing. All of us should be emboldened in our witness but also assured in our own faith that we no longer have to perform to please God. That we don't have to jump through hoops and evangelize people to try and win his smile or say our prayers or read the Bible or do good deeds in order to earn his favour. We already have his favour. We already have his smile. We don't do those things out of a sense of guilt or a need for affirmation. We do them because his love is in us. The Spirit of Christ is in us. The Spirit of Christ says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Oh, beloved, remember our Saviour. Remember the Saviour who cried out a warning to those women who were lamenting and mourning for him when they themselves were at the edge of tremendous danger. This was not Christ's tragedy. This was his triumph. And he warns them, if God is willing to do this to me, the living vine, One who bears fruit. What do you think he will do to the deadwood? What do you think will happen to the one who does not bear fruit? To the one who is dead in their trespasses and sins? That which happened to Christ will pale in comparison to that which will happen to those who have rejected him. Remember the Saviour who prayed for the, the man who nailed his hands and feet. Who gambled for his meagre belongings. The Saviour who prayed for the passers-by as they mocked and scoffed and jeered at him. As, asking the Father, even in his darkest of moments... To forgive those who were so guilty of sinning against them. And then finally, think of those two thieves. Those two men on either side, both so deserving of death, so guilty of their crimes, both the same. Yet ultimately going such, in such different directions one whose heart was hard and cared only for this life and for the things of this world and was only concerned about escaping his duly given sentence. His heart was hard and fearless, careless when it came to God. God meant nothing to him. Eternity meant nothing to him. This life after death meant nothing to him. While the other faith truly feared God. For he knew his guilt. He knew that he was in danger. That he had fallen under the sentence. Not just the crimes that he had committed. But before the court of heaven he stood guilty. And he recognised that his guilt was immeasurable. Christ, the spotless Lamb of God would survive and be found guiltless in heaven. And he cried unto Christ because he understood that Jesus was the answer. He understand that Jesus Christ was the only one who could save him, who could rescue him. The only one who had the ability to grant him his request. Remember these two men. Strive to be more like the second, the God-fearing thief upon the cross. A man who was desperate for salvation. Now you and I, if God has called us and has God has granted us life and we have faith in Jesus, let us be then Bold. Let us pray to Jesus. Pray for me. Remember me. The whole idea of to remember doesn't mean that Jesus, is like, oh yeah, I remember this one time I met this guy. We were on a cross, you know, and it was really it's a funny story. You know, I can tell you it. Just fell. I met him. he just, I can't remember his name, but he was there, you know. And this other fellow, just a bit of bad, ah, but this guy, he was a good guy. Doesn't mean that kind of remember. It means to speak on my behalf it is joseph saying to the butler and to the baker whenever the to the butler whenever a pharaoh accepts you and you're serving again before pharaoh remember me to pharaoh speak on my behalf don't forget me when you come into your own please let me be with you and we see by jesus response that this man Got the answer to his prayer and he got it immediately. Beloved, pray like this man, seek the answers to your prayers. Lord, remember me, Lord, remember me in my need, Lord, remember us, knowing that He will answer. Let us not be deceived by the world and by this generation in which we live that says that we must motivate men we must make salvation attractive we have to paint a good picture paint it up make jesus more attractive always remember reading from ian murray's book the forgotten spurgeon at the back of it there is a letter from a church member From the Metropolitan Tabernacle who is complaining against the the changes made after Spurgeon had died and other, I think it was A.C. Dixon, the American evangelist had taken over. They began to have appeals in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. They asked men to put up their hands to receive Christ as their Lord and Saviour, to come forward and to accept Jesus, to pray this prayer. And this member who had been alive, of course, when Spurgeon, he said, we never had this kind of thing. I mean, and so he, he tells in this letter of a conversation that he had with the, the writer of the letter. Tells in of a conversation that he had with A.C. Dixon, the American evangelist who was pastoring the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he says, but sir, we've ne- we never did this kind of evangelism while Mr. Spurgeon was alive. You know, surely the, is not the Holy Spirit, I'm paraphrasing, of course, is not the Holy Spirit able to draw them in His own time? And A.C. Dixon, again, the American evangelist, said, Yes, but surely we can give the Holy Spirit a hand, can we not? We can just help the Holy Spirit in the salvation of others. Beloved, we live in that age when men feel they need to help the Holy Spirit. Where they feel that it is unless we lower the bar, unless we do all that we can do to bring people in, they'll never come in. that God is not able to draw them. That's such a lie. so unbiblical. God is able, even up until the last point, we know providentially that God will move and steer and direct and lead and guide people to where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there. Think of Philip, the, the evangelist, and the Ethiopian prime minister. Think of Paul and Silas, I think it was, in the jail, in the Philippine jail, when the earthquake happens. Time and time again, we see God moving through circumstances We can have confidence in him. Let us be confident in our telling of the gospel, in our leading people to Christ, in our walking and working together with the Holy Spirit. Indeed, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Beloved, we have a God who delights in saving people. Though we have... Are in a time of gospel darkness when truly there is a famine in the land, not of bread or water, but of the Word of God. If we, His people, seek His face, if we repent of our ways, we don't do the things that the, the worldly church has been doing. We seek Him, we repent, we walk in His ways and keep His requirements. We shall see a new move of God in the land, a revival, a reformation, as our spiritual ancestors have done in the past. Let us stand firm. Let us remember the crucified Christ and the fruit of his sufferings, the reward of his sufferings. He purchased redemption. Did he just do it for you? Did he just... Purchase redemption for all those who want it? No, beloved. For all those who were chosen of the Father from eternity past, all those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, let us be confident, and know that all those whom the Father has given Christ shall come to him. And let us be confident. Let's be steadfast and let's be obedient to the command. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do ask your blessing upon our efforts. Help us, O Lord, for we have become so intimidated by the methods and means of this world. Lord, Worldly churches often point to their size and to their their, their, their actions and their activities and, and scorn us and we become intimidated, Lord. Oh, help us, O oh God. Help us to be confident in you and in your actions. Help us to know that you are a saving God. Lord, help us to appreciate Jesus Christ, that he who laid on his life Lord, laid it down for us and for others that it was a success and not a failure. The the death of Christ wasn't an unfortunate tragedy, but rather it was a triumph of grace. It was all according to your plan and to your purpose. Lord, we thank you for the display of your mercy and of your grace. Lord, we, we thank you for the warning, Lord, and of the need of repentance. We ask, O oh God, that you'd help us to remember those two thieves, the one who did not fear and the one who feared. Lord, that we might be as them, or as the, the, the one who feared. Lord, that we would be motivated in our lives to call unto you. Lord, remember us. Remember us in our lives. Remember us, Lord. For we know that you will answer your prayer. Lord, we know that you will you will be active on our behalf. Lord, please, help us, O oh God, to be emboldened, to be full of courage, to stand fast. Lord, to be faithful. Lord, we ask this for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.